to truly create three lines in one corner that are like questionably which one's fast or maybe one caters to a different rider than another to really truly be able to do that it is very very challenging and sometimes you think you've done it you're like oh this this one's going to be quicker and then no one uses it right but to get it to where you can consistently do that all the way down the track where you can have line choices that are so close to each other that it makes the riders really think that is very very challenging to do that Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blom. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. For episode 154, we have Sean Leader the owner of Southern Gravity, and former owner of the Windrock Bike Park. During this conversation, we cover all things gravity, what it was like to operate Windrock Bike Park, things that Sean learned, and we even get into suspension design, World Cup downhill racing, and Sean's take on the current state of enduro racing. There is also an exclusive announcement from Sean that you'll hear first during this conversation. Cooley Creative is the title sponsor for this episode. They design and build custom websites, as well as help companies with branding, photography, and e-commerce. Cooley Creative was started in Wisconsin, but is now based out of Bend, Oregon. Jared from Cooley Creative is a friend of mine. We've traveled together on multiple mountain bike trips, and sometimes he sends it. For more information about Cooley Creative, head on over to www.dojustsendit.com. Yes, that's right, www.dojustsendit will get you to the Cooley Creative website, so check it out. Kettle Mountain Apparel Kettle Mountain has been huge in terms of affiliate sales for this podcast which has allowed me to donate some money back to various trail organizations during the month of November. If you are looking for new activewear, please consider ordering through the affiliate links provided in the show notes, as this not only helps cover the cost of running this podcast, a significant amount of money also gets donated back to nonprofit trail organizations. Now onto the trail effect with Sean Leader. So Southern Gravity, is that is that the name of your actual, the trail building company that you're operating under now? Which you have in the past too, I guess. Yep. Yeah. So Southern Gravity, um, myself and Nico started that in 2016. And um, it was what we built Windrock under. Um, it was what we were running downhill Southeast under for quite a few years. And yeah, I just kept it going and it's been my trail building company and it's going to be um, the name of some of the things that we'll talk about in this podcast. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Sean Leader. Sean is the owner of Southern Gravity, a trail building company that also does some other things as well. Out of the, I'm going to call it the greater Knoxville, Tennessee region, even though he's probably about 40 minutes outside of Knoxville. It's still the, I guess, the closest airport and the closest large population center and a location that mountain bikers especially can relate to in terms of geography. Sean is recently the uh, former owner of the Windrock Bike Park, and the last time we talked, he was way deep into owning Windrock Bike Park, and we're going to talk about all the things that he learned through that and some other stuff as well. And how's it going today, Sean? It's going great, Josh. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been uh, it's been a really nice few months. 
been able to shift gears a little bit and that's been pretty exciting. Yeah. It's been nice. It's been two years since we talked because you're on episode 43. Wow. And I want to catch up with you in regards to Windrock and, and stuff like that before we get to the chapter of you selling to Aaron. Yeah. So like maybe some of the key moments or things you learned while operating Windrock. Yeah. I mean, th- I think since we last talked, these last couple of years have been probably some of the most um, inspiring couple of years for me because I really got to see all of the hard work that we put in in those few first years um, start to pay off. And and the growth was like incredible. So the past couple of years have been amazing. Like the races have been huge. The small events are even massive. And there's just really, I think the coolest thing to see is how many people have moved here. I mean, it is wild how many people have moved to Oliver Springs and to Oak Ridge, like just for the bike park. And I, I think that's been kind of the, the most incredible thing that I've seen that I really didn't expect that. Like I thought people would keep coming here and keep riding here, but to see people pick up and move from all over the country, it, that's been pretty incredible to see. That is pretty incredible. You've had some, and I mean, speaking of people moving there, I mean, even people like Dakota Norton have moved there, there, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Aaron, Aaron bought a house here and Logan, Nico's brother bought a house here and man, the list goes on. There's, there's, I would, I'd say probably around 30 to 40 people I know who have moved here. And when you say move there, like from all over the country? Yeah. All over the country, like a lot from the Northeast, but also, you know, California, Washington, Colorado, like it's, I mean, it's representation from all over the country. So since we last talked, has your uh, view on gravity-based bike parks changed at all? Which is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to qualify that with, they continue to grow in terms of popping up in locations that are unsuspecting to where people might think they pop up. Yeah, I bet, you know, since the last, I, I seem to recall in our last podcast, I started to say, you know, that we set a trend and we were going to start seeing more and more popping up. And in these last two years, I think we've absolutely seen that. And, and, um, I think we'll continue to see it. I think it's, it's been right on track with what I was expecting. It is for sure. And so down by you, I'm sort of down by you, you had Jared's place pop up. That was yep. like six months after we talked, I believe that place actually opened up and yep. in and Missouri, Ride there's, Rock Creek. oh yeah, Ride Rock. Well, yeah, you have Ride Rock Creek. We, I didn't think, yep. I don't know why I didn't, that one didn't pop on my radar. Yeah. Howler bike park. I know Texas just opened another one. Yeah, Howler's an interesting one. In fact, that was the last podcast that actually came out on this on this format. There'll be a couple between not when this one's released and and that one. But I've actually been to Howler twice in the last month. Cool. And it's it's an interesting story. And I know a, a mutual friend of ours did help build there as well, Mr. Mike Rogan. Oh yeah, Mike's in town right now. He's staying over at Dakota's house. He is, and I just wrote to them. Probably a week and a half ago. That was probably two weeks ago now. Week and a half ago, two weeks ago, he was in. Uh, he had to roll through Missouri, and and then he stopped at uh, actually sta- sta- stopped at our other mutual friend's place, Andy Flistra. Stopped at his place for a bit, and Andy and his wife and myself and Mike Rogan all did a lap at Kohler and Bentonville together. So that was pretty fun. That's good to hear. Andy's number one man. I, I love Andy, dude. He's a cool dude. Yeah, he's so nice too. I mean, the guy does incredible work. He's and he's so so nice. Yep. So, yeah, so it's been pretty well spot on with what I thought and um and I see it going forward and you know I think I think um 
a big mission for me was to to dial in how I was building these shuttle trucks and trailers. And I, and I think that that was a pretty key part to like really revolutionizing how downhill parks operate. Um, so I, I supplied the trucks and trailers for Jared's place and for Rock Creek as well. And we're continuing to build those. Um, I think that that has really opened the doors to how a, like a real bike park can function without a chairlift. And I mean, honestly, I think, you know, I've, I've said it since day one, I think our system is more efficient than any chairlift that's out there. We can get more people to the top of the hill faster at a better price. So I, I hope to see more. I hope to see more parks that are chair, not chairlift based, just um, using shuttle trucks. And um, yeah. It's interesting because I, you know, I have a list of topics in front of me that I did not send to you. And my next topic was shuttle vehicles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that has been like really the key to, to getting Winrock to work was designing efficient shuttle trucks and trailers. And um, fortunately, I grew up in the manufacturing world and my family owns a, a really big manufacturing company here in town. And because of that facility, that's where I've designed and built all of our trucks and trailers. And I've built, I think, 18 trailers now. And every one of them gets a little bit better. We 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 learn from our, our mistakes and we dial them in more and more. And and really my trucks are are getting like kind of insane. Like they're so nice now. If if you've been to Winrock recently, you'll see our newest trucks that we built. They have covered tops and they have backup cameras so you can see the bikes behind you and they're on fresh chassis and it's really changed the game. And we just finished two for Rock Creek and delivered them last week. So, uh, yeah, I, th I think um, that's a, that's going to be a big focus of mine in the future. I think um, shuttle trucks and trailers are, are the key to getting more bike parks out there. And so I'm excited to continue building those for people. And, and um, yeah, I've actually recently bought a commercial building that we're going to focus just on building those trucks and trailers in that building. Let's talk about the evolution of both the truck and the trailer, like things you've, things you've improved upon with that since you started doing it. Cause I know when you, when you guys started, you, I think you started with school buses and you had the people loading into the school bus with the bikes and yeah. quickly learned that probably wasn't the best idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of my time now is spent consulting for people who want to start bike parks and the first thing that I tell them is you're in the business of getting people to the top of the mountain. So you better do it really well. You can build the greatest trails in the world, but if you can't get people efficiently to the top of the mountain, you're, you're wasting your time. So, you know, we started with what we had and on a budget, and now we've got a system that works really well. You can go buy these brand new trucks. You finance a, you finance a truck for a thousand dollars a month Buy two of them. So you have $2,000 a month payment. We build the, the beds and the trailers, you can get into that for uh, just under $30,000 per truck. And um, we have some options for financing those as well. So it makes it pretty efficient where you can cash flow like the expense to your ticket sales and, and it makes sense. So I definitely think day one, like no bank was going to give me and Nico a loan to buy those trucks. It wasn't going to happen. but. Um, you know, if you're in a better financial place that we were when we were 20 year olds, I just highly recommend just buying brand new trucks and don't learn the hard way. What are the numbers we're talking about in terms of like 
maybe people per hour, you know, relative to say a lift service? Yeah, I believe I have a calculator on it. And um, basically my calculator was putting us with a four person high speed quad. We are outperforming uh, a high speed four person quad four to one. And that's with our 30 person trucks and running three. So the thing, the good thing with the trucks is that you can, you can scale how many trucks you're operating based on how busy you're going to be. And once you do it for a while, you can really, you can really get an idea of when your peak seasons are going to hit and when you're going to be the busiest. So you can scale up. I mean, you could have at, at one point I had six trucks on the mountain and, um, and we would run five at a time and have a backup if one, one broke. So you can scale based on your, on your load, which, you know, you can't, you can't do that with a chair. And, uh, and then you can dial it back. If you're slow, you can just run one truck and you can keep your costs down and, and, um, cater, cater to the amount of people. But yeah, I, I believe we were putting up four to one on a high speed quad. The only thing that rivaled us was gondolas, but you know, you're, you're starting around $10 million to get into a gondola. That's a lot of trucks. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of trucks. Even with the even with the chairlift, man. We we did cost analysis of it and we had we got quotes from a couple different chairlift companies in the country and it was a lot of trucks. We could have, you know, we could just keep buying trucks and um our system works. So I mean, I I just really stand by it that it's um the ski industry is why we have those chairlifts and it's it's not necessary for the mountain bike industry. No, and as as we talked about last time, between trucks like what you're talking about and e-bikes, those two things are definitely making bike parks go into places that you'd never even think about a bike park going. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the cost to build a bike park is not enormous, you know, and and um if you're doing it right, you can you can get it paid back. So, you know, building a ski mountain is incredibly expensive right there's there's so much that has to go into that to in order to cash flow that thing to make make sense but um yeah an e-bike park man you can you can build an e-bike park for a few hundred thousand dollars and charge 30 bucks a head and have that thing paid off in a couple years it's 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 more feasible now for sure yeah so your trucks and trailers are hauling did you say 30 30 people at a shot 30 people and 30 bikes yeah, the Winrock ones, they'll do 30 bikes, 30 people. Rock Creek, they do 20 people, 20 on a trailer. Really, I, I'm, I'm not sure which one I like more. They both work really well. It's pending on the road. Like The road quality is definitely, um, we get away with it at Winrock. We have a great road that's like a consistent grad- gradient the whole way up. So we could get away with those really big rigs. But honestly, I'd rather have four 20-person trucks than three 30 person trucks because the load time to get 30 people loaded on a trailer it's um it takes a little bit of time to get all those bikes slotted in there whereas with a 20 person truck you can turn and burn like you can you can get people on the truck really quick and keep it moving and um you know the added cost of having having a fourth truck is pretty inexpensive like if you need four trucks on your mountain if you have that many people there that you need four trucks you don't need to think about the cost of that vehicle because you're going to be doing okay. Speaking of that, over your years at Windrock, what are were you pretty surprised in how much 
your ridership grew over from year to year? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and it had a big spike. Like, you know, we got lucky with COVID. It it really helped us. Like, um, we saw a really big spike in there. But I, I think a lot of the rest of the bike industry saw a big fall off. And um, you know, we definitely saw a fall off, but not not what the rest of the industry was telling me. I think we retained a lot of our riders through through the high of COVID. So yeah, I mean, we went from year one, I think we sold 2000 lift tickets and last year we were over 10,000, 10,000 lift tickets. So I think that's a pretty successful, successful number. And you also went to operating seven days a week, if I remember correctly. We did. Yeah. And that, that has its perks. Like it's got its slow days for sure. When we went to seven days a week, our revenue drastically increased and it allowed us to, to really invest more in the park. It definitely has its slow days, but I saw that kind of as a, a way to let the fast riders ride during the week. Like a lot of the weekday riding is just like pro guys who are out there trying to train. And I wanted to keep that going because that means that, you know, those guys don't have to ride on the weekend and, you know, it, it can be a little bit dangerous to have really, really fast riders mixed in with your weekend riders. So allowing the allowing the weekday shuttles to happen and maybe losing a little bit of money here and there so that the pro guys have a chance to ride open tracks, um, that was really important to me. Yeah, so this is a topic that, I don't know, you, you can skirt around this topic if you want. Windrock is a testing facility for biking component manufacturers because I know there's some good stories that have came out of that. <laughs> and maybe now that you're not the owner, you can talk about it. Or maybe now that some of these bikes are components that ha- have been released, you can talk about it. But I know like, like for example, we'll bring up the new Trek Slash, which is a bike yep. that I recently picked up. That was tested, I believe, at Windrock to a certain degree, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Correct. Yeah. And the Trek Slash, there was one day I went to the park Trek was there testing the new slash specialized was there testing the downhill bike that, uh, Loic and Finn rode this year and intense was there testing their new downhill bike with Aaron and Dakota. So in one day, three top manufacturers were there testing. They didn't line this up. They didn't know each other were going to be there. I knew that specialized was going to be there and I sort of knew that intense was going to be there. I didn't know that Trek was going to be there. So, you know, it's just a random Tuesday. I showed up and there's three, three crews of people with, you know, secretive thing wraps over their bikes, like trying to hide what they're doing. And, and, um, yeah, I think that was the best thing about Windrock. That was, that was why we started it. And that was really what, what brought a lot of joy to me when I, when I'd see that happen. Yeah. And I think Santa Cruz has also been there and obviously Nico did his, uh, his quality testing and a lot of other stuff. And his yeah. new framework spike there. Yeah, the new V10. The new V10 was um, was uh, partly developed there at Winrock. Kieran McKinnon came out and put in a lot of days on his test rig, and and um, that was the bike that Greg was riding this year. So, yeah, I mean, it's there's no better place in the country to to test a bike, and 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 part of that was having those weekday shuttles where we could, you know, we, those guys could kind of hide out down in the bottom parking lot and get away from people and and have an opportunity to, to test some prototype stuff without a lot of people, a lot of people staring. Yeah. And I can imagine that when you get those different companies there, they, they, I'm sure the mechanics and stuff start talking to each other, not maybe about specific stuff on, on each other's bikes, but just in general, just from a socialization perspective, like how awesome is that? 
Yeah, you know, and, and I've met engineers over the years that maybe were working at Maxis before that are now working at Specialized or Shimano. Like, I think um, it's a good culture for for both both ends of the spectrum. Like getting to getting to see lots of different engineers there, and I'm sure they're talking to each other, and maybe they go work for another company and provide you know provide a service to somebody else in the industry. So, yeah, it's it's catering to all those different facets of the industry. Let's go into trails. You had a segment that was tracks versus trails on the yep. last one. Has your philosophy changed on that or, and, or have you evolved with no, I don't tracks think versus changed. trails? Or maybe you could go through that again, just to kind of give us, bring us up to speed with what you actually mean by that. Because I totally buy into that philosophy. I still work on that philosophy. And, and when I talk to clients about new trail builds or, or new bike parts that are going to be track heavy, I still preach that. I think, um, it's still an important philosophy to me that um, there's a difference in building trails and building tracks. And um, I think one thing that I've learned probably that over these last couple of years, as we've done more trail building projects is the trail builder that can build, you know, your average city park, bike, bike park style trails and the guy who can build tracks is sometimes very different and sometimes they can't cross over very well like i've got guys on our crew that build amazing downhill tracks and i tried to bring them out to you know some like corporate style trail building jobs and they did a terrible job like it wasn't for them but they're amazing amazing downhill track builders so it's it's been interesting to see like which people really excel at that kind of building and then letting those people like explore that that expression of art. So I think track building, it really takes a good rider, like to build really good downhill tracks, you need to be a really good rider. And I mean, building flow trails too, the same thing. You also have to be a good rider, but it's just a different, it's a different eye. Like there's, there's guys who can build flow trails that probably couldn't make it down one of our downhill tracks and they're great at what they do. Yeah. I still preach it that there's, there's a, uh, there's a big difference between a track and a trail. And it's, it's an art form in itself to learn how to build, to build a really good track. What's a key component to building a world cup downhill track that you might not even be able to, like, obviously you might be able to pick it up as a spectator there to what you see, but you definitely probably can't, maybe it doesn't maybe translate into what you see on, on TV. Yeah. Like what kind of stuff is happening on those tracks that, I mean, I saw it firsthand when I, when I was at Windrock, how, how steep stuff is. Yeah. You know, but yeah. there's like the GoPro effect, right? Right. I mean, I think the most fascinating thing at a downhill race is to see what lines people are taking and um, to truly create three lines in one corner that are like questionably which one's fast or maybe one caters to a different rider than another to really, truly be able to do that. It is very, very challenging. And sometimes you think you've done it. You're like, oh, this this one's going to be quicker and then no one uses it. Right. But to get it to where you can consistently do that all the way down the track where you can have line choices that are so close to each other that it makes the riders really think that is very, very challenging to do that. I've seen lots of places where I go ride and somebody's built a downhill track and they've made it wide with the hope of having lots of line choice. But in reality, everyone's just running down one main line by the end of the weekend, you know? So 
to truly get it to where there's three or four lines in, in every corner, that is very, very challenging to do and takes a lot of years of practice, I think. Um, and sometimes you think you've, you've, you've done it and you haven't, you know, everybody just ends up on one line, but yeah, that's, that's for sure. The, the challenge to me is like, can you set it up where people can ride different lines and maybe it's faster for somebody to do that line, but not faster for everybody. And, you know, not just like a pro line on the, that has like a gnarly feature, because the thing is, is that at the highest level, every one of those dudes who's racing a world cup, they can all ride the gnarliest stuff. So like a gnarly line doesn't really separate. It's, it's not making a difference. Cause if you just have like a hard line and an easy line, well, those dudes are all good. Every single one of them is going to take the hard line. So it's in the nuance, like in just the smallest little thing of how much edge does it have? Or is there a sharp rock in the center of it? That's going to make the decision change for them. So it's definitely very challenging and, and probably the most enjoyable part of building a track. Well, that and, you know, a, a track will evolve over a weekend, right? Because you have so many riders doing so many laps on it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of times, sometimes, a, you know, an inside line is great at the first bit of practice, but by the third day, it's destroyed. And, and um, you know, I think the really talented riders, they can, they can see how a track's going to evolve before it happens you know and, and they're they're making their decisions based on how the track's going to evolve more than how it looks on the first day well let's talk about selling to aaron gwen that had to i don't yeah. know i mean aaron just recently did a podcast with well, actually he's done two um but the one on downtime he actually went deeper on buying windrock and kind of what went into that but it sounded like you guys had maybe loosely been discussing it for about a year or so yeah yeah about a year i mean we were fighting to get Aaron to come out here. Me and Nico, we constantly were messaging him, getting him to come to one of our races. And finally, a few years ago, he came, he came out to one of our races and he was hooked. And, um, and then he bought a house here and, and he really showed a lot of interest in the park. And, um, and about a year ago, I, I just had some conversations with him. He, he was interested in investing more in the real estate side of Oliver Springs. And I think he really wanted to know that, the bike park was going to continue operating before he like really invested in, in more real estate in, in town. Yeah. We just kind of went back and forth about it and, and, uh, he came to me with an offer and, you know, we, we worked through it and, um, it made sense. I have a lot of confidence in Aaron. He's really the perfect person for it. Like I, I wasn't actively trying to sell the park, but I saw an opportunity that I thought would make the park better. So that really influenced my decision. Like I wouldn't have sold the park to just anybody. I felt like bringing Aaron in was going to make the park better for everybody. And, um, I had a lot of ideas that I wanted to make happen at the park and I was like really actively trying to get them done, but it was hard. It was hard with my budget constraints. And, um, I think Aaron, Aaron, saw the value in like continuing to invest in the park and saw that it was going to have a good return. So it really made sense. Like, I think it's going to be for the better of the downhill community. It's going to be for the better of Oliver Springs and Anderson County. So I'm, I'm proud of everything I did there. I think, um, I loved my time there. I'm not the first person to build a mountain bike trail there and I certainly won't be the last. So there, there's been a lot of people who have contributed to Windrock Mountain, and 
I hope to just be one of the good ones, but I, I think that it'll live on and there'll be a lot more great trail builders that, that come through there over the years. I don't know if this is fully credited to Windrock, but like there's becoming a market for downhill bikes again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would, I would like to think that it's because of Windrock and, and because of downhill Southeast, they were, they went hand in hand, you know, um, me and Nico's vision when we started Southern Gravity in 2016 was to build the racing community and then build bike parks. We had a vision of building three bike parks and continuing growing downhill Southeast. And we thought it would, it would revitalize the sport. And, um, we chugged away at it and then we eventually split off. We, you know, I think, I think we, we reached all those goals in 2015 when Nico and I talked about our, our vision for Winrock, all the goals that we were setting back then, I think we've accomplished those now, you know, and, and that was another reason I was, I was ready to move on. Cause I, I felt like my vision, I, I had seen it through to a point where I was like, we've really created, we've created exactly what we had our mind on. Like we have an amazing race series. Now we have multiple downhill parks and we're starting to see downhill bikes, you know, getting sold again in stores. Like I'm seeing local bike shops now that are carrying downhill bikes here in Knoxville. And, um, we hadn't seen that since Norba Norba days. So it's pretty cool to see how, how it all panned out. Yeah. I think that the two most notable ones, at least recently, recently that you can credit to Windrock is, is Nico's frameworks. And then the new M1 from intense, which that one kind of took me by surprise. Cause you saw those guys racing on a four bar. I think it was a four bar setup all of 2022. And then all of a sudden, like a month after the race season is over there on the six bar setup. Yeah. Everyone wants to ride the six bar right now and they ride good. There's no doubt, but yeah, every, every the six bar is hot right now. Everyone wants that. So I don't, you know, when new bikes come through and maybe are getting tested there, how often do you get to throw a leg over say a test bike? Uh, pretty often. Yeah, pretty often. I, I mean, I think people are pretty willing to get, get different opinions. I mean, over the last eight years, I've gotten to ride so many downhill bikes. Um, after the second year of Winrock, I stopped taking sponsors, like private sponsors. Um, I didn't really have a need for that anymore. And um, so I just started riding as many bikes as I could. And and I have rode so many downhill bikes in the last eight years. Like every chance I could get, I'd ride somebody else's bike or I really mostly I just I'm pretty into just buying frames and building them up and riding them for three months and then buying another one. And I, I've just been buying and selling frames like as many as I can, just getting getting an opportunity to ride as many bikes as I can. So yeah, it's 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 been pretty enjoyable to ride a bunch of different bikes. Have you has there been any trends that you think are kind of here to stay that really uh, did make the downhill bike or even say a, a longer travel enduro bike? that much better? Maybe like, I mean, I'm going to throw out like a high pivot or the six bar or some of the things that you see coming forward now that are make it, making it out of bigger brands, uh, production bikes. I would actually say kind of the opposite. I think, um, I still think there's far too many gimmicks out there, which could segue maybe into a section that I, I didn't bring this up to you, but it's something I really want to talk about is, you know, I feel like there's a lot of gimmicks out there that aren't necessary. I think that um, there was really good bikes a long time ago. And with modern geometry, there's still there's still great viable bikes. I mean, I think that the Iron Horse Sunday was a phenomenal bike. 
And um, if it had modern geometry, it would be equally as competitive. So I think that there's a lot of gimmicks out there, but I think that those tried and true DW setups, the four bar horse link setups, they work. And, um, you know, Nico's proving that with frameworks. And I've been working on some passion projects lately that are, that are proving that the, that the DW style link that the iron horse Sunday used was, was competitive as well. So I guess a year ago or so I had a friend, this guy reached out to me on Instagram and said, Hey, I'm thinking about moving to Tennessee. I've, I came out to Winrock. I liked it. I want to move out there. And, uh, he owns a frame building business called Ferrum bikes. So I was messaging him back and forth and he ends up moving out here and he is waiting on his house to get built. And he says, Hey, can I come stay at your cabin for a week? My house should be done anytime soon. Well, Matt ended up staying here for six months with his wife, Amrani and his, um, newborn child. And, uh, so they stayed at my house for six months and Matt taught me how to weld steel frames. So I built my first downhill bike with him. And, um, just in my barn, we had a really inexpensive welder and we didn't have a tube bender or notcher. I, I, uh, Matt didn't bring any of his tools with him when he moved. And so we did it very primitive, like literally with just a drill and a cutoff wheel and a, a sander, you know, and I proved to myself that I, I had the ability to make, uh, bike frames as well. You know, like I've, I've been in manufacturing my whole life, but it's, it's with big things like these trucks and trailers that we build where it's, it's big steel working and the tolerances aren't quite the same as frame building. So over the last year and a half or so, I've, I've really been enjoying like the challenge of building steel frames and I'm on my third bike now and I've gone with a system that's, um, it's uh, more similar to the Giant Glory. And so as far as I can see on history, like the Giant Glory is essentially was ripped off of an Iron Horse Sunday. And I think those court battles between Dave Weagle and Giant would probably back up that statement. So, you know, when Nico started Frameworks, he messaged me and he sent me all of his files and he said, hey, can you make me all these, can you make me all these aluminum pieces at, at my dad's shop? And um, I looked through his drawings and stuff, and I didn't quite have the right equipment to be dealing with like aluminum manufacturing. But as he got going with his project, I'm like, man, this is this is super fascinating. And so I started messing around on linkage and and learning how to make how to make leverage curves that we liked and and started to study study like the suspension systems a little bit more closely. and. So I'm pretty fired up about building bikes right now. Like it's, it's definitely like very entertaining to me. So I guess, um, I've got my, I've got all my parts coming in for my fourth bike that will be more similar to a Mondraker. So the giant glory and the Mondraker are like very, very similar to each other. They have one little nuance in how the shock is mounted to the bottom, the bottom link but they're very similar to each other. So my next one will be more similar to a Mondraker, but have more of the kinematics that are closer to Nico's Frameworks bike, which will be interesting to see like whether the four bar horse is a better way to do, to do the same kinematics as a DW style um, double link. So like if you took the Frameworks bike and the bike that I'm working on right now, they're 
their leverage curve is almost identical, but using two different style linkage systems. So I'll be really interested to see how the two of them ride back to back. But I'm a big believer in in steel frame bikes. They are like pretty indestructible. And weight wise, like it's not a factor really. I mean, like if you pick up the new Commonsol V5 compared to the bike that I'm riding right now, it is like significantly heavier because of the hydroform aluminum tubes. They're so big that they end up weighing about the same as a straight gauge steel pipe. So I'm pretty sold on steel, steel downhill bikes. I think there's a, there's a place for those, especially around here. I've got the new slashes. I already told you. I'm going to be honest. It wasn't until just yesterday. I've had it for over a month that I really kind of started to get along with it. I'm subscribing to what you're talking about now as well, because I have the last slash also. The, so the gen five, and I don't know if it's maybe cause it's just simpler, but it's definitely more playful, but you saw with Nico, Nico's bike. So I'd like to maybe have you talk about this. Like how high is your pivot? Cause Nico, I think went to the edge of a high pivot in terms of like using that O chain to get around having to use the idler pulley. Yeah, the the O chain is the answer and I and I really hope to see more engineers um expanding upon the idea of the O chain. I think I think that that style clutch having a having a clutch system in the front chainring is the future for me. Like I mean that salt the the high the high pivot is to solve pedal kickback and you can solve that in the chainring and maybe with enduro racing, like you don't want to have as much lag that the O chain has, but I see, I can't see any reason that that O chain style floating chain ring could get expanded upon. Like I, I've been talking a lot about how like the Onyx hub or the stealth hub, the way that they have kind of an infinite engagement, the way that clutch works. And I've seen a couple examples of people applying that into a front chainring style clutch that has infinite infinite engagement like that. So I think the future of development for what I would like to see is to solve pedal kickback at the chainring rather than having to add a high idle pulley. I think that those just cause too much too much issue. I mean, they're there's too many instances I've seen of chain chain issues with them and chain alignment issues. So it doesn't seem like the answer to me. Well, and the chain just in itself is like at 126 lengths. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's a pain in the ass. So I, I, I'm all about simplicity in the bike, man. Like I I there's nothing that makes me more frustrated than internal cable routing. Um, I just I want to be able to go out and test different brakes and just cut the zip ties off and slap another one on. Like I want simplicity. Like I want all the, the newest bike I'm working on all of the linkage hardware. It bolts in from the non-drive side of the frame. So to me, like the most frustrating things are when you want to change a shock and you have to remove the cranks, like having to remove your cranks to get your bottom shock bolt out or, or any, any bike that has a shock that it's hard to get out is totally unacceptable to me. Like I want to be able to test different shocks, change my spring rate. Like it should be easy Two bolts, no bushings. Like both the bolts should be on the same side of the bike. I think it's better to put them on the non-drive side of the bike. I think it's easier to like bolt check your bikes. If everything 
you can is on the non-drive side. So I'm I'm all about simplicity, man. I, I I just really think that I mean I get it. Like there's a lot of consumers that want their bike to look like a Ferrari or whatever. Like they want it to look crazy. And there's companies that do an amazing job of that. Like the Canyon to me is like aesthetically like a, a really, really cool looking bike. But um I think for every customer that wants their bike to look like that Ferrari, there's equally as many customers that just want simplicity in their bike and they want it to function and be easy to use. And so there, there, there can be both out there. Well, and not too long ago, you posted on Instagram about a Ferrum bike that you helped design, but it had no suspension in the frame. Yeah. How was that doing a 12 hour race in a hardtail after coming off of an <laughs> e-bike and shuttling for like however many years? Yeah, it was pretty brutal, man. I, I, um, I, my fitness was non-existent. Um, <laughs> but, uh, my like mental strength was really strong. Like I, I had convinced myself that I wasn't going to stop riding for all 12 hours. And I think definitely the last few months I've, I've felt like mentally really strong. I think s- selling the park was nice that that relieved a lot of, a lot of like stress in my head. But, um, I felt like the last six months or so I've been like mentally really strong. So I was, I've been trying to just like push my body in different ways to make sure I'm still alive. And (laughs) so I, I told myself I would ride for all 12 hours and I did, and I I did not go fast. I mean, I crawled along for all 12 hours, but I, I just thought I could do it and, and stuck to it. But yeah, we, we designed this, um, hardtail. It's really simple, hardtail pretty modern style hardtail geometry, like nothing crazy different than a Cro-Mag or some of the other ones that are out there, like not wildly slack. Yeah, just pretty on par with what's out there right now, like a 420 chain stay. And they're actually really fun to ride, man. I, ha- I haven't stopped riding that bike. I ride it as much as my e-bike now. It's just enjoyable to ride and it's really fast. Like I kind of forgot how quick a hardtail really is. Like I mean, I can go ride with Emily and she'll be on her e-bike and I'll ride that thing and it, we can ride together because I can push the pace on that thing pretty well. One of the things that caught me by surprise on that specific bike was you had riser bars that I think you stole from Dakota Norton. <laughs> he might've learned a thing or two from me. Let's be real here. <laughs> he's just getting all the credit now because he's landing yeah, on podiums. Yeah, 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 yeah. You stand on the podium and you're going to get the credit. <laughs> no, I've been a high bar fan. For a long time. And really that came from Isaac. Um, Isaac Levson, he he when he moved to the country, he was really into experimenting with bar height, stem length. And uh he kind of opened my eyes to that of of how how nice it is to have a super high bar. For that 12 hour race, I had it exceptionally high. Like I I wouldn't ride it that high normally, but I I knew that like the back pain that place where that 12 hour is it's like one of the oldest trail systems in town and it's so rough and i felt like my lower back was just going to be destroyed after after um a few hours of it so i ran the bar really high just so i could have a a very upright position you you definitely it rides a little funny to have it crazy high like that but um but there was a comfort factor there for sure but yeah i'm all about i'm all about the high bar man i've I've got a prototype stem that I've I've been posting a couple pictures of it. And I'm gonna post some more recently, but I've got a 20 mil rise downhill stem, direct mount stem that I've had made in China, and uh, I designed it with my friend Miles, and I'm on my third iteration of it now, and it's really close to production. So I hope to release those here this year. 
Well, that's probably a perfect segue into like, aside from the fact that you're into bike design and suspension design and manufacturing of steel bikes, like what next is, is going on in the world of Sean Leader? Yeah. I mean, just maybe to stay with that topic for now, I'll, I'd, I'd say, um, I just recently closed on a 7,000 square foot commercial building. That's going to be the headquarters for Southern gravity. So the, the front part of it, it's, the building was, uh, it was built as a Pontiac dealership in like the fifties and it's just five minutes from my house. And, uh, so the front of the building is going to be a retail bike shop. We'll continue selling specialized bikes. Um, I, I really believe in, in their bikes, their e-bikes, their, their, their apparel and their clothing is like phenomenal. So the front will, will carry on as a retail bike shop and the back of it will use for frame building and building the trucks and trailers. And we'll have some other little parts that are getting built there. A big project that I'm working on is our, we have one, one of the guys that works with me, Matt, he um, is a really good wheel builder. So we've been selling hand-built wheels at Winrock now for like five years, where we, we use a Novatech premium hub, and we build them into a DT Swiss rim with really nice spoke spokes, nipples, and good prep. And it's the best downhill wheel you could possibly buy. So we want to continue doing that. So we've we've gonna have a section in this shop that's just designated to building custom downhill wheels and getting those, you know, out to our racing, our racing community and and then maybe wholesale back to a couple of the bike parks that that um believe in those wheels. So that's, that's like the project I'm most passionate about is the new Southern gravity headquarters that we can, um, start, you know, expanding on, on what we're doing with frame building and component building and, and wheel building. So we hope to have that open in, uh, March. I'm I'm shooting for March 1st to have that store open and we might have the e-commerce side of it open a little bit before that. E-commerce to me is really important for, for a bike shop, um, especially for what we do, like these kind of custom wheels and, and such. So we, we stock good downhill parts and we ship them all over the country. And we've, we've done that all along through Winrock and I want to continue doing that. I think that's a valuable, a valuable tool to the community. Like there's not a lot of e-commerce sites that have a catalog of just downhill parts. So I'll keep that going. I've enjoyed doing that over the last five years and I want to see that through. So that's really my big passion project right now. That's like keeping me fired up. But um, of course, Southern Gravity Trail Building Company is as busy as ever and, and we're still growing. We've got a couple bike parks that we're doing the consulting for right now that are we're hoping to be building in the next couple of years. And we're doing maintenance at a couple of parks that we've worked at in the par- in the past. So the trail company is is carrying on. It's it's chugging along, and and we've got some clients that we're we're really excited about building for in the future here. So yeah, a little bit of everything. I, I mean, I think um, my motto has always been to be diversely spread across the industry. That way, if one asset's doing better than the other, they can lift each other up. So I'm going to carry on with that philosophy of like staying diverse across the industry and exploring like different creative avenues, um, where I can. With that, how far is, how far is that new shop from say Windrock? It's gotta be no less than 15 or 20 minutes, right? No, no, it's a little bit farther. Okay. 
it's about 40, 40 minutes or so. And it's not going to be as much of a downhill focus shop. Like I, I, Aaron has big plans to keep expanding. Like right before the sale happened, I finished building about a 2,600 square foot building out there. And Aaron's going to build out that, that shop. And he plans to like continue really focusing on downhill componentry and service work. So it, we're we're pretty far away from it, and 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 I want his shop to be very successful in the downhill community as well. Like it's important to have lots of shops that can handle doing suspension services and stock downhill parts. So we're we're quite a bit away, and and our storefront probably won't stock a ton of downhill specific stuff as much as our e-commerce like distribution will. Yeah, and so do you with the frame manufacturing? Are you gonna do steel and? Or steel. Are you going to do um, s- suspension and and hardtails? I think we'll do some hardtails here. So the downhill bike will be under the Southern Gravity brand, and our plan for right now is Matt Matt from Ferrum is going to help me run this shop, and so Ferrum will operate out of the shop as well. So I think Ferrum bikes will carry on with like the hardtail and the full suspension bikes, uh, trail bikes, and he's working on a couple new a couple new designs like his full suspension has been single pivot in the past and he's working on a four bar system that I'm helping him on. So I think I'll try and support Matt and Ferrum as much as I can and he'll operate out of the shop and, and maybe we'll get into building some of those hardtails here, but we also want to utilize like Taiwanese manufacturing for some of that stuff as well. Like I think there's a couple brands out there that have done it really well where you can, you can make a US version of your bike and or you know like Chromag does in with Canada they have their Canadian version and then they have a version that's made in Taiwan and over the last couple of years we've been ordering a lot of samples out of Taiwan and to be honest i think that the quality of them a lot of times is is like equally as good maybe doesn't quite have as good of a story and and um isn't supporting US jobs as much but i think um to build a brand like that, you kind of have to have both avenues in order to get volume out. Like it's, it's tough to manufacture in the U S it's definitely a lot hard, a lot harder. Well, circling back to Windrock, when you were operating it and maybe I guess this, this might be continuing on under, under Aaron, what number, like, what did you typically have for number of employees working for you at any given time? Normally about eight to 12 eight to 12 was a pretty good and, and and mostly part-time, like pretty much everybody part-time, a couple guys that were hitting 40 hours a week, but mostly part-time. And yeah, I, I kind of went with trying to have mostly part-time people like, and hiring guys who want to ride as much as they want to work. But I think at the most Southern gravity is probably employed about 16 to 20 people as a whole between our trail building company and, and, um, Windrock and we, and we float people around, you know, we would, we would float people around so that everybody could work as much or as little as they wanted. And a lot of people just want to work as little as they can, which I'm all, I'm all about that, man. I'm, I'm like the most flexible employer you could possibly have. Like, I think it's really, really valuable for people to enjoy their life and ride as much as they can. And, I would rather have twice as many people as I need to get a job done and, uh, and let people do what they want to do. And, and I can pick up the slack if I need to, but you know, I always get it done and find a way to get it done. Yeah. I think that's a key component that we forget about working in 
recently changed my word from industry to community, and you'll hear why in the next podcast that comes out before yours. But in the mountain bike community, I think like I know that I've been really guilty of this this year. Like riding for me is really has really dwindled in terms of like the amount of time I get on a bike just because I've been so busy. And we need to remember that the whole reason why we're here in the first place was because we enjoy riding a bike, right? No doubt. Yeah, no doubt. And you'll have highs and lows. I mean, at the end of the day, we all got to make money. And there's there's times when when you got to work hard. And um, but you don't have to do that all the time, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. One of the places that I, that I found super interesting that you were able to build that in the last year was, I think it was over Gatlinburg, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. I was really fired up about that build. It was so different than anything else I built before. Cause it's very catered to beginner riders or like first time riders. So it was a challenge to like push myself to try and get in that mindset. Um, but I think it turned out really well. It's not a huge park, but, um, it has, it has good potential. They're actually installing a new chairlift. Like it's a really old mountain. So the chairs were like crazy old and kind of slow and they're replacing those. They have a new owner and he is really invested in the, in the facility and, and wants to see it grow. So they have new chairlift coming and Hopefully we'll be building some more trails out there here soon. I've, I've flagged a couple new big jump lines for them. So we got them going with, um, we got them going with like a good base of, um, like kind of two greens, two blues, two blacks. And, um, hopefully in the next few years, we'll get to build some like cooler jump trails and, and a few more black trails there. Well, and that's a, a community of anyone that's been to Gatlinburg would know this, but that's a community that forever kind of blew my mind that there was no mountain biking there. That, I mean, they have literally everything else from, I don't know, aquariums to zip lines and everything in between. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can't say too much, but I can definitely say that that's, uh, over mountain is not going to be the only bike park in that area in the next few years. That community definitely sees the value in recreation and, and I believe we'll see quite a few more bike parks there in the near future. Well, and they, they definitely see the numbers of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They have the volume of people for sure. I mean, I think it's the and most lodging. Yes. Yeah. It's the most visited national park in the country. Um, so the, the people is, I mean, sometimes it can be like kind of scary how many people are there. Like it's when it's leaf season, like, man, when the leaves are falling, it's, you hardly want to go there. Cause you, you're like stop and go traffic in the middle of the forest. So it's, it's got its goods and it's bad. But if you're from this area, the smoky mountains is, you know, the nooks and crannies that are good to go, but it's definitely kind of for the tourists and, and the Cumberland mountains on the North side where Winrock is, that's really for the, for the locals. Yeah. And you guys have some awesome riding there. It's, it's, I don't know. I've, I need to get back there myself. I've been trying to get back to Windrock since I was there last time and, and it hasn't worked out for one reason or another, but it's, it's going to work out here in the next six months. Mark my words. I'm getting there somehow. We'll say before next summer riding season here in Wisconsin. I mean, when you and I rode that day, like I was, granted I was on a bike that was way out of my league and on trails. It was raining that day, wasn't it? It was raining. I was, (laughs) I was on a top field to begin with, with an enduro wheel set up. And then you, you kind of laughed at me and that's like, right. Here, here okay. why don't you take this downhill bike? It's my girlfriend's. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it takes the right bike. It's, it's, uh, it's a unique place, man. You, and you really need the proper equipment to be there. 
Yeah. And since then I've gotten, I've had a, I've had a couple of more enduro bikes and granted I haven't gotten on a downhill bike cause it's, or I haven't purchased a downhill bike because honestly, there's really no place for me to ride one like almost anywhere where I live. Yeah. The, the, the like one thirty bike, man, that's a, that's a good bike for almost everywhere. I see, I see more and more of those that are, they're really appealing to me. And I even like, I mean, I even like pedaling the slash, you know, yeah. even at the high pivot, like I don't, I get along with pedaling the high pivot uphill just fine, you know, which yep. is, you know, where I live, I have to pedal it. That's actually the biggest thing that surprised me with the new track is how well, I mean, they say it pedals good and they weren't, they're not wrong. Yeah. That's good to hear. I see a lot of them, man. There, there's a lot of them out here. Yeah. Yeah, man. I see tons of them all the time. That's good. Well, Sean, what else haven't we hit on that you'd like to go into? Um, yeah, I guess the, the only other exciting news that uh, I haven't put much press release out. So I'll tell you first, but, um, the, the downhill bikes I'm working on, I've, I've put some money to the side to run a race program. So I've hired three athletes to, to ride for me next year to kind of prove that these bikes that we're working on can compete at the, at the highest U S level. So we're, we're focusing on national racing. I'm a big believer in, in getting the U S national series back strong. So I've invested in three really talented athletes. They they all won their downhill southeast categories last year. So I have a my youngest is Bryson Presson. He's a thir- he was 13 14 last year. He'll be 15 16 this year. So I've got the youngest junior and then uh Charlie Goldwyn. He'll be racing 17 18. He won the downhill southeast overall last year. And then I've got an elite rider Jack Peterson who's um who uh, also won the downhill Southeast overall last year. So I've hired three athletes that I think can win some championships and, and, um, put some cash aside to, to let them, you know, have a full proper program and we'll see how it goes. I'm I'm really excited about it. I haven't really like gotten to go to the races in a few years, so I'm, I'm pumped to get back to them and build out the trailer and get the pits dialed in and yeah, see how the kids do. There hasn't been, I mean, we're seeing it now, but you know, it's really been since the Norba years that there has been a really strong contingent of national caliber races and, and you and Nico have definitely like pushed that envelope to make, to bring that back to where it should be in the United States. It it cracks me up. Like I'll look at, and I'm sure it cracks you up too. There's so much bike manufacturing and so much marketing in the U S and it, it blows my mind that we don't have a stronger series, right? Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, it just takes individuals, you know, and, um, there's nothing special about Nico or I, and, and we just, it just takes individuals who are, who are committed to doing it. And if, if we could influence one or two more people, I mean, we would have a seven race series again. So we're getting there. Um, we have, you know, we have a couple of really good people that are working hard at it. Um, but it just takes a few more. Um, so if you're out there listening and you're thinking about holding a downhill race, man, hit me up and I can give you all the beta you need to make sure that you make money and you provide a good service to the community. Cause we just need a couple more to have, to be back where we have, you know, a seven race series, but downhill Southeast is doing a phenomenal job, man. Like the race coverage, like investing in that race coverage is huge. And, you know, as long as the Malali family keeps doing that, I'll keep um, investing in the sport. And um, I mean, I'd love to see a day where 
where elite riders can get paid to just race in the United States again. I think that that's out there and we can get back there. And I'm willing to put some of my, some of my cash on the line for it. And I've reached out to a couple brands to see if they're willing to help me out. Um, but, um, you know, we need to get back to where U.S. brands are supporting U.S. teams and we're growing the sport, you know, organically grassroots from from the races. Yeah, it'd be cool to see uh, a good Rocky Mountain stop again and maybe a good SoCal stop again. You know what I mean? Yep. And the Downhill Rocky series did a great job. Jeremiah's a great race promoter. He he did really well with Trail Party. I enjoyed having him at Winrock. And he started downhill Rockies this year. And I heard it was a, I heard it was a great success and I've been bugging everybody I can to get one of those as a national stop. And if it's not, I'll still go to one of his races next year to support his series. Um, but, um, I'd love to see a Rocky mountain race again. I mean, I enjoyed racing angel fire. That was always fun. I think purgatory has a really good venue. So there's no reason to not have a race there. Yeah, for sure. And, and you're right about the coverage. Like there isn't. I mean, the coverage that Mangler's doing with, with Downhill Southeast, and then I think he also took on, well, I know he took on the U.S. Open. Yep. And the fact that they get that out in like a day or two, it's insane. It's amazing. It's amazing. The quality is so good. Um, Mangler's a, a saint for doing that, man. And I've been trying to support him however I can. I mean, I think um, same thing. If you're, if, if you're out there in the industry and you have a marketing budget, man, hit up Mangler and help him out because what, what he's doing for this sport is um, is amazing, and it's it's really going to change U.S. racing to have that kind of coverage. I mean, they're getting the viewership. He came out and did the Tennessee National for me last year. We had a hundred thousand views on YouTube um, for a forty-five minute show. I mean, that that's incredible that we're able to do that year one. So, I mean, if we could keep that going, that would be an amazing thing for the sport. Do you ever foresee, so we don't have a World Cup in the United States coming up in 2024. Do you ever see a venue like Windrock or somewhere else um, in the Southeast being another World Cup or bringing another World Cup race outside of Snowshoe? Yeah, potentially, man. I, I, it's, it's hard to, I don't know. I mean, I know there's a lot of politics involved with that when it comes to UCI stuff. There's so many things involved. And, you know, I had several Zoom meetings with Chris Ball about getting one at Windrock. And I wanted to really badly. I wanted to bring World Cup and Enduro World Series to Windrock. And um, financially, I don't know that it can function very well. I mean, it is, it's an enormous cost that they require the venue to put up. So unless you could get all these tourism boards and the local government behind you, like there's no way from what I remember, it was two years ago when I had these conversations with Chris, and we were hoping to have a 2024 uh, Enduro World Series and World Cup at Winrock. And it was basically going to cost me, you know, somewhere between $350,000 and $500,000. And that is not realistic for, for like the scale of our park. And we don't own the, we don't own the, the hotels and the restaurants. It, it wasn't realistic. And just to build a team, just to try and get that grant money or funding, that also was like hardly realistic. So I don't know if we'll see one in the US again, if anybody would be willing to put up that kind of money. I hope somebody is, but um, I don't know. 
if you have to have that kind of budget to put on that event, it's going to make it really, really limiting. So if there's a way to make that cheaper, I think it seems like it'd be more realistic, but that's, that's a lot of money to ask for a small business. I mean, that's, that's like pretty unrealistic. And what's the ROI and something like that? I mean, realistically, right? Yeah. And that, I mean, that was the pitch that they were like, you know, by having this world cup there, you're going to increase your ticket sales exponentially. And, um, I don't know. I feel like I'm pretty savvy on how big the market really is. And, and I think we were getting it. I mean, I think we do a pretty good job of marketing and I think we were getting maybe not the peak of what our numbers can be, but you know, for what our facility is, I, I just didn't see it. Even if you went from 10,000 to 14,000 lift tickets in a year, that's not going to, your ROI is it's never going to happen. You're never going to pay that back. So I don't know. I if the if it's the right venue, you know, and like with Snowshoe, it seemed like it probably worked cuz they own all the hotels, they rent all the restaurants, but they own the buildings. So, it seems like if you have that kind of setup, it can it could probably be more viable. But um how many corporate US bike parks are there out there that really have the uh mountain for hosting one of those races? It's it's very few. So I don't know the answer to that. I'd have to say I'm just not that concerned. I, I really just want to see U.S. downhill racing be amazing and the best we can. And um, so if we have another World Cup, that'd be great. I'd be happy to help consult or build a track anywhere I could. But um, I don't know, man. I, I just really want to see U.S. racing be be as good as it can be. And and I think we can do our own thing right here that that has a self-sustained community that that we don't we don't need that as much. Yeah. And I mean, going back to old days in Arba, how awesome would it be to where I mean, back in those days, all the Europeans came or most of the Europeans came to do Norba Nationals when, when there weren't when there wasn't a World Cup happening. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's let's, you know, you can only focus at such a big scale. And to me, I just want to focus on that. I think, how, how can we get that back? And, um, you know, we, I think now we have really good races and we have a really good series. So to me, the next step is for, for the industry to invest in U.S. race programs. So I, I'd like to see more pro, pro downhill teams that are, that are like, really getting the backing they need to get them to 15 races in a year. And, and, you know, we've had some amazing companies like SRAM Rockshocks has, has invested so much in downhill Southeast and in Windrock bike park. And, and that's really how we have those race recap. We wouldn't have that race recap without, without Rockshocks. And so there, there's a few companies that see the value in it and, and hopefully we'll see more in the future. Yeah, SRAM is a company that, especially in the last few years, has really amazed me in terms of how much they're starting to give back to the mountain bike community in terms of, you know, supporting the stuff that you just talked about with the coverage for Downhill Southeast and the Tennessee National. And even more importantly, like just trail development, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're they're truly, from every aspect I've had working with them over the last seven years, I think, um, they have helped shape what we've got going on here and and they they really are a cool company that 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 really um gives back a lot you know so it's cool to see that before i let you go i want to get your thoughts on 
the state of the current state of enduro racing the way you see it, it up in my neck of the woods up in the upper midwest it's as strong as ever there's races that are selling out you know three four hundred spots in a matter of hours if not faster wow up by me but it seems like and maybe that's just the coverage that kind of went down but it seems like maybe on a national even international level that it's kind of plateaued what have you seen i have seen the same and i, I would say it's worse than plateaued here in the southeast the it has kind of crumbled. We never really had a great enduro scene here in the Southeast. It, it never really took off here and it's only gotten worse. I'd say, you know, it's maybe not the best to me. Enduro racing is like the best enduro races. I remember are the ones that were just like epically long stages, just huge transfers, big days. I raced enduro world series in 2000. 13 and 14 i think and i recall those races being like brutally hard they were two-day format some of them had a prologue on friday night but i remember them being like an extreme physical challenge like just getting through the race was challenging and um i don't know i can't say i love the new edr style format of just like multi-stage downhill racing essentially I get it for coverage wise, but I think even with things like that, like what I've noticed is because of the push for EDR and shorter format enduro racing, we're seeing more multi-day, multi-stage races. So the trans, trans, whatever, you know, these five-day enduro races. And I think that's really cool. I mean, I, I see that as like, that like has my eye where I'm like, I would love to go do one of those. Um, so for every for everything that somebody wants to complain about in the racing scene, it pops up somebody who has a creative idea who makes it better. So I think that this like big long format three to five day enduro racing is a really cool format that I hope to see more of that in the future. Yeah, I do too. And and to be honest, what you just described in terms of when you were racing uh, the Enduro World Series, like that's kind of what drew me to enduro racing because I came from an endurance background and just wanted to get better at bike handling and gra and the gravity side of it, but still really enjoy a long day on the bike. And I think we need to get back to that. I, I have a suspicion that enduro is so strong where I live one, because we kind of lag behind in certain aspects, but two, because it's like the only form of gravity racing that we can really do up here. That's sustainable in terms of like getting any elevation. Cause we, I mean, we have five, 600 feet of vert, but in order to make it fun, you got to do it a bunch of times, right? Yeah. 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 The land is always going to dictate everything, you know, whether it's trail building, trail design, enduro racing, any kind of racing that the land dictates it. So it's really, you know, you got to work with what you got. The last enduro race I did this year at Copper Harbor, it was a 35 mile day, you know? Yeah. So it was a seven stage, six, six or seven stage with a one significant distance in, in terms of transfer. But I, but yeah, I, I agree. Hopefully we see, hope, and hopefully, I mean, I don't even know if, I mean, does it really need to be like world-class coverage for enduro? <laughs> that's, that's the thing. It's like, do we really need that? You know, is that, is that really going to bring, what, what are we going to get out of that? You know, I don't know. I, I love watching like Erzberg rodeo, like hard enduro, multi, multi-day, multi-stage hard enduro racing. And they just do a recap style video. And I watch all those things. I love watching those. Um, yeah, I, th I think we have a lot to learn from the the hard enduro world and what they're doing for for the enduro sport. 
Well, and now that you say that, my favorite enduro coverage was Red Bull did a show a few years ago, and I can't remember if it was it called On Track. Yeah, I think where they followed uh, Curtis Keen for a while, and then uh, Greg yep. um, Callahan after that, I believe. Yes. Yep. That was some of the best enduro coverage I thought there was. Yeah, it was really cool, and uh, it was like from an individual's perspective. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know what the viewership of those things are, but there's a lot of ways to cover stuff and get the media out there. People are crafty and so many people are vlogging that are doing successful race vlogs. And I don't know if we really need to like cater an entire sport to get it on national television. For sure. I think the best, I know this is not, this is nothing new, but some of the best enduro coverage is from Jack Moyer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I can't complain. Race the the like I said, for everything that somebody complains in a race, it pops up something else that's um, equally as cool. So, I'm I'm just a fan of a fan of racing and a fan of athletics, and so I'm I'm always just like enjoying what what's out there. You're 100 spot on, and we'll see everything still continue at whatever rate it does. And you're right with the with having the multi stage things. It seems like the multi stage enduros are coming up, and that's some pretty awesome stuff. So, well, Sean, I really appreciate getting back together here. It's been just slightly over two years since we last recorded something. Um, hopefully we can connect yeah. in person next time. I know. Where will I be in two years? I have no idea, man. <laughs> well, we, hopefully I'm down in your neck of the woods in the next couple months. Cool, you know, man. Because I, I need to get out and, and ride. And I, my experience at Windrock was awesome. I need to do, I need like a, I need to do it again on a different bike. And I also need to check out some of the other stuff that's been going on down in your neck of the woods because there's just an awful lot of really cool trail building happening down there. Yeah, man, we got an open farm policy. We didn't we didn't get to talk about my pigs this this time, but maybe maybe next time we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about raising hogs and and uh, my experimenting with uh, farming. Yeah, you still got you still got your uh, jumps in the woods at your place. Oh yeah. Yeah, we more, more than ever, man. I, I got a couple new sets of them. I'm really into these electric motorcycles now, so I've been building like purpose-built stuff for the electric bikes. Yeah, like the Surons. They're bigger than that, even. Yeah, the Surons, the Suron style. They're they're super fun, man. So I'm building a lot of stuff for those, and and um, I've been uh, really into um, like regenerative farming and. I've created this system that uh, I need to I need to do a separate podcast about this one day, but I've created this system of farming that uses single track trails that those are what create the perimeter fencing for raising pigs. And so like we have about six miles of single track here on our farm. And between the single track is um, a pig paddock in the woods. We have um we have about eight of those now and we rotate our pigs through these paddocks. And then we use the single track as a way to check our electric lines. Cause they're running on just like a very simple electric line system. So I've created this system of farming that coincides with building mountain bike trails. And right now it's just been kind of an experiment of like, can we integrate uh, trail building and regenerative farming together? And I'm two years into it now, and I think that there's really like a future for this, and I don't know where it'll go or if I'm just a lunatic, but I'm really enjoying it, man. I, I've been I've been eating healthy, like we raise our own pigs now and do our own gardening, and and we've been pretty well off grid for for two years now, and and 
it's been a, it's been a nice shift. Well, I guess you just gave us a reason to reconnect. Yeah. When you uh, have a little bit more information on your, on your regenerative farming and single track trails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd absolutely love to spread the word on that. I think it's something that's really unique that um, that um, has been pretty fun to work on. That's a good way to end this one. Well, Sean, I really appreciate your time again today. It's been awesome cool. to connect. And I love the fact that we got to intermix trail building and shuttle trucks and bike suspension design and bikes in general. It kind of covers, we covered all of it here. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And if you want to find me online, you can get me on Instagram and, and I'm always happy to talk bike parks or racing and share what I know and, and try and help grow the sport. Yeah. And I'll drop links for your Instagram in the show notes, as well as you have a Southern gravity website up. Yep. And we have a separate Instagram for that as well. And we'll start growing that more here in the future. I'm just like slowly getting that all together. Well, thank you, Sean. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you're new to the Trail Effect Podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. If you listen to the Trail Effect Podcast on Apple or Spotify, please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect Podcast. Also, don't forget to check out Cooley Creative at www.dojustsendit.com. For additional ways to help support the Trail Effect Podcast, check out the Affiliate Links tab at the Trail Effect website, where you'll find links to Kettle Mountain Apparel, Worldwide Cyclery, and Trail One Components. By using the affiliate links found at www.trailfectpodcast.com, a small commission will come back to the podcast, which will help keep this thing going. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. Thank you again for listening.